Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Happy Friday, everyone. It is Friday. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast, and uh, I am your host, Josh Carter. Uh, Carmen Nazario is off this week, but we have a great show. If you are a new listener to us, uh, welcome, first of all. Uh, and here's what happens. And for the next hour, we get to know these amazing veterans uh, that are doing remarkable things uh, like businesses and, and, and whatnot. And this week, we have a, a great uh, entrepreneur, Nick Black. He's the founder and CEO of Good United. We're going to hear all about that. But first, uh, happy Friday. Welcome to the program, Nick. Hey, I appreciate it. Same to you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, our listeners are a mix of, you know, people that are just curious. Uh, they love the veteran community. Maybe they're uh, entrepreneurs. They want to be an entrepreneur. So uh, let's first talk about you. Let's get to know Nick Black a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your service in the military, what branch, and what brought you into the military in the first place. <clears throat> Sure. So I was a senior in high school during 9-11. I uh, went to Langley High School about two miles away from the Central Intelligence Agency. Oh, my. Uh, that day obviously had a big impact on me as well as uh, every other American. Uh, but I decided then that I wanted to go into the military, uh, especially doing ROTC. I went to Johns Hopkins University. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, to get through there in one piece. Graduated in 2006. I was commissioned. Um, again, I lucked out. I got to go to the 173rd Airborne uh, in the Army, based out of Vicenza, Italy. And from there, I deployed twice for 27 months uh, to the border of Afghanistan. Uh, I left the military. I'm sorry. I left active duty in 2011 to go to business school at UNC Chapel Hill. And during that time, I also did two years of Army Guard in the uh, North Carolina Army National Guard. So let's talk a bit about your service and while you were in. You know, obviously, you were very much impacted by what happened during 9-11, as were a lot of folks. Uh, but when you got to the military, what was uh, some of the things that you expected and uh, what you actually did during your time? Um, in, in regards to expectations, I honestly just wanted to go and fight. I wanted to go to Afghanistan, and um, I got that opportunity. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I was surprised by, you know, the experience. I really enjoyed the experience and the people I was with. And, uh, I, I never expected, you know, some of the friendships and, uh, the camaraderie, uh, that was there. Uh, but it was just a, you know, remarkable, um, opportunity for me, especially, you know, as a young guy, uh, coming out of, coming out of college and being a platoon leader and having the honor to serve and, and to lead uh, men into combat was just uh, remarkable. So, what you went into Afghanistan? Uh, what what other did you just spend all your time in Afghanistan, or did you travel a little bit more beyond that? Or it was tell me a little bit more about uh, what you actually did. I was a fire support officer. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, so I was at Fob Tillman, uh, which is about two kilometers away from the Pakistan border in Paktika Province. Uh, we were in the mountains, so we did dismounted patrols most of the time. That was a 15-month deployment. Uh, There's a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, combat in that deployment. And then my second deployment back was about 
10 months later, maybe a year later, and I went to Wardak Province, which is just south of the capital Kabul, again, in a mountainous area, not as uh, not as steep as is on the east coast, on, I'm sorry, on the east side of the country, uh, but there was a very similar uh, type of fight. That's interesting. So you get out and you go into business school. What's the motivation? I felt like I understood uh, force. I understood what um, security. I understood combat. Um, I, I didn't understand combat, but I understood, you know, what you know that that world is like. And but I did not understand economics. I did not understand, um, you know, what other drivers are out there. And I felt like I could make a a larger difference um, going back to school and, and learning about, um, you know, uh, supply and demand and and why things run than staying in. So I decided to get out and, and go to business school. And so, and what do you think uh, from your military service prepared you for when you went back to school? What, what was it that, that helped you really succeed uh, as it related to your military experience? When So military experience helped me su- succeed in graduate school? Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. So you leave the military, you go into business school. What right. was it that uh, translated well for you to succeed in school? No, no, no. Honestly, it didn't translate very well. Uh, the first year was really hard. Uh, it was really hard for me to transition back. Uh, I was pretty much a different person. Uh, I, I was, sure. I'm a big guy. I'm 6'3". And, uh, you know, I, I sat front of the row. It was, it was very hard for me to, you know, associate or, you know, talk with my peers. I I always remember a first, you know, I think it was a accounting class. And we were talking about where people were, where they were coming from. And as people go in our room, they were coming from Deloitte. They are coming from all these great companies and, you know, six months before sitting in that classroom, I was in a firefight. Right. So for me, it was, you know, it, it was hard, but I also am very thankful for the opportunity that I had two years to kind of reacclimate, to get my feet underneath me, and most importantly to learn. And I think, you know, coming from the military is, you know, being humble. Uh, you don't know all the answers. So being inquisitive, asking the right questions and, you know, being able to understand all these different aspects of business and in different industries that I never would understand before. What do you think it was that helped you to finally acclimate to use your phrase uh, into school, into the workforce? Like what was it that finally got you comfortable again to be in the workforce and in school? Other veterans. Um, I will say that, you know, when I got out, I I co-founded a nonprofit called stop soldier suicide. And I've been working on it for eight years. It's grown. Um, and we're helping over 100 veterans a month. So I had something to do. I was very active in building that from you know day zero, ground up. Uh, but really, what helped me was other veterans in my MBA class. Uh, you know, a story I, I talked to you know other people about is you know I was at a bar in Chapel Hill, and there was some frat kid that bumped into my shoulder, and he uh, I'm sorry, bumped into my buddy's shoulder, who was a Blackhawk pilot. And the kid turned around and, and just said something really disrespectful, and I just I was going to just absolutely destroy this guy. Then my buddy pulled me aside as a Marine uh, combat vet from Afghanistan as well. You know, and I never forget. He told me, you just, you, you got to relax, man. They don't know any better. They don't know your background. They don't know this. You got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And that's always stuck with me. You know, giving people benefit of the doubt, um, you know, and not just going straight to, you know, uh, you know, have, having more patience and more calm. So, and that's a great, you know, example for me. Uh, but you know, a lot of the other veterans really helped me as well. But then, you know, getting my peers that weren't in the service, um, you know, they treated me incredibly well and and really asked great questions. And 
And through their help, I, I think, you know, I got to learn a lot and feel a lot more comfortable and it really set me up for success. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, Stop Soldier Suicide, because it sounds like this is something that's very near and dear to your heart. I, I've read a bunch of different articles that, you, uh, that you've that you been a part of this for a long time, uh, but talk about the, the sort of the precipice for this. What, why Stop Soldier Suicide? I mean, there's so many different... Um, you know, resources for veterans out there, specifically for PTSD and mental health. Why did you feel like this was really important uh, mission for you to undertake? My first deployment uh, was 15 months again to the border of Pakistan. My company was the only company in our brigade that did not lose a soldier uh, to the enemy. That's great. Two weeks after redeployed, one of my soldiers shot himself in the head outside Fort Bragg. Jesus. So you know, to me. I'm, I'm pissed off, mm-hmm. and I'm pissed off because of the injustice that we've lost more service members to their own, own hand than the enemy. So the question of why stop sort of suicide is that when we got back, one of uh, a friend of mine, a ranger uh, friend, his buddy didn't know where to go. And mm-hmm. what we found, there's a gap in the marketplace of how to navigate the existing maze of resources and services available to veterans and family members in need. As such, starting that day, we essentially created a, a very impromptu case management. We did the due diligence. We did the work to try to find the right um, service at the right time. What that's translated into and what's grown into is a 24-month evidence-based case management program run by people a lot smarter than me, uh, social workers with big degrees, and you know we are that advocate for the veteran, and we help them uh, everywhere we can. That's incredible. I, I mean, it, I suicide for for me personally is uh is a big topic mental health overall but from a different perspective right like i lost my father to suicide from mental health he wasn't a veteran or anything like that but i mean it's still it's one of those things where we don't talk enough about this particular subject whether it is just in general mental health or uh you know the men and women coming back from seeing really incredibly gruesome shit at a very young age and not really understanding how to reacclimate themselves and and figure out how to put it into context and just feeling you know like you said really alone and uh right. and man i applaud you for this because this is great um well, and, and even if it saves one life which i'm sure you guys have saved many but uh this is just such a worthwhile cause to support yeah you know i appreciate that and thank you for sharing um you know your your situation and, and um you know for me you know I can't also look you in the eye and tell you that we've done anything. I know we've helped veterans. We help over 100 a month. But our purpose is to reduce veteran suicide in national average. Mm-hmm. Hell or high water, we are going to do that. And so really what we're doing right now at Stop for Suicide is take a step back. I don't care who solves this thing. I want someone to solve it. I got asked by um, a organization. Uh, I did an interview. He said, where do you see Stop for Suicide in 10 years? I hope it doesn't exist. Right. Because we've got to figure this thing out, and as such, the gap that we're seeing right now is how do we identify and acquire veterans at greatest risk upstream? Because right. we've got 24 million veterans out there. We can't boil the ocean. Not all veterans are, are equal if we're ever going to get accomplished anything. So we've got to figure out how to get the big brain people, the data scientists, the innovators, the engineers. How do we use data? How do we start to figure out – how do we start to segment out you know, individual characteristics that might put a veteran at risk? And how do we start to apply effort to get in front of them to disrupt their path from where you know they might potentially going down? So I'm very hopeful. We're having a big summit in Washington D.C. next week, actually, uh, next Thursday. We've got people flying from all over the world, 65 innovators, and we're going to reposition uh, Stop for Suicide to go after this one piece. Uh-huh. And so I, I'm 
I really want to see next year that I can quantitatively tell you that for a certain veteran demographic, whether it's 25 to 35 year old white males that live in Montana, have access to a weapon, that drink alcohol, that serve in the military, we've reduced suicide by X percent. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's that's what I'm fired up about, um, obviously. And uh, so. That's that. <laughs> no, I can tell you're very passionate about it. I think part of it is just, you know, from being on this side of, you know, the, being being one of those that are sort of quote unquote left behind uh, after a suicide. I, I can tell you, like, part of it is just lowering the stigma of it being, you know, okay to ask for help. And I think, you know, part of the thing that makes military people so unique is that we are driven, we're passionate, uh, but we don't like to ask for help. We don't like right. to, that that weakness. That sort of like, you know, I I've got to go ask for help, uh, and that makes me weak, right? That's just something right. that we as military folks, men, women, enlisted officer, we just don't like that stigma. And I think once you break that down, you start to have a better conversation about what is possible. So I think that's right. part of it. But there's a, there's a, you know, as you know, there are different tentacles, different ancillary issues that exist within this. But uh, but you guys are doing amazing work, and I, I'm I'm so excited about this. And whatever I can do uh, to help, please let me know. But I appreciate that. Um, we're gonna take our first break. Is that cool? Absolutely. Yeah, go for it. CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. So we've been talking to Nick Black. He's the founder and CEO of Good United. And we're going to start talking, digging in, drilling down about what that is. So your website says that Good United is the first company to help nonprofits tap the unlimited potential of Facebook fundraisers. So, you got it down. Yeah. I mean, well, you, it's very helpful. You have it very, uh, <laughs> you've articulated this very well. Uh, but I'm curious, like, first of all, why Facebook? That's a great question. So I've been at this for four years. Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I have a very strong track record of failure. Um, and through that failure, I learned and hopefully not apply the same mistake twice. Through that, we've had two points of failure, or I know in entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship world, we like to call them pivots, but we've had the same purpose. And that purpose is to empower nonprofits to make every donor feel appreciated. That makes that sense. resonates with me as you know, my university um, you know, sent out a note that is donated $1.8 billion was donated to Johns Hopkins University from um, Mr. Bloomberg. Then I got an email follow-up saying asking me for cash. So I don't know. I'm not a millionaire. I don't have a, you know, I don't have a, a, a plane. No one takes me out to dinner, but my experience with philanthropy isn't great. Sure. If I give, I get a newsletter asking me to give again. So how do we use technology to figure this piece out? So to circle back to your question is that our biggest challenge with Good United for the first four years was when we take a look at the long tail of donors, the average donor. And oh, by the way, the average donor gives eight times more than the largest philanthropists and foundations. We had to figure out what segment of that long tail of donors is important enough to get a nonprofit to move and to pay for our service. And so with Facebook, we believe that we found that uh, that donor that is important enough and that, that we found fit and now we're growing that business uh, to, to make every donor feel appreciated. That's interesting. So I, you know, I've I've been part of a nonprofit for uh, about a year now. You know, I help run a, a nonprofit called Patriot Bootcamp. We help uh, oh, awesome. military, okay. right, military spouses and veterans grow their technology startups. So I'm on this side of the of the table, 
and I am just made of questions right now. So the first is, <laughs> right, the first is, how do you make a nonprofit appealing enough so that they are successful on Good United's platform? We don't. So there's two parts of the equation. One part is the generation of fundraisers. The second part is the management of organic fundraisers, if you want to use the word organic. Sure. So our customers right now have organic fundraisers starting on their behalf. So we are not focused on the generation of fundraisers. We're focused on the management of ones that are already happening. Some of our customers are seeing over 10,000 fundraisers. Individual fundraisers start a month for them. So okay. it's a massive opportunity. It's a massive new revenue stream. Um, and, you know, we're really proud of what we've been able to do. And our North Star is, you know, of the of the nonprofits that we help, the, the fundraisers that are there, how many of them want to do it again? And right now, 94% of fundraisers that, that we help manage want to sign up and do the fundraiser again in the future. It's awesome. That's, that's great retention rate. So on average, how much are these fundraisers actually raising? There's a lot of variance. Um, we've seen anything from $88 per fundraiser all the way to 180 uh, There seems to be some correlation with very specific uh, diseases where they would have a higher uh, you know, uh, fundraiser amount, uh, but right around $118. Interesting. Then, so how do you take that and further, like, for example, uh, you know, our budget is not huge, but and we try to find every uh, opportunity we can to fundraise, but it's a challenge. And I think what I've learned being helping to run a, uh, a nonprofit is when you're starting to talk to larger organizations about how they fund your nonprofit, they like to see how many impacts, how many lives you impact, right? So this probably resonates with you having run your, your uh, nonprofit, but when you're applying for grants or looking for funding, they want to see that, say, for example, someone's writing you a $100,000 check and you say, right. we impact a thousand lives, they divide that number and then they look and see, you know, how much individually on average it costs them to put that money to work. Does that make sense? Yes. So how then do you help non, do you, I guess my question is, do you help nonprofits figure out how they can unlock their potential to make the fundraise more successful? Yes. So we create custom Facebook messenger automation. Got it. Um, and within that automation is AB testing and, and really trying to get down, you know, doing research. Uh, we've got, we've got a great team of, of you know, data scientists and people inf infinitely smarter than me, copywriters. I really try to understand the why, why is that person starting a fundraiser? Now, how do we back out of that? So whether it's working with a nonprofit to break down, what's the cost of treating a veteran? What's the cost of, of breast cancer? What is these, the, the, you know, your, your impact metrics, mm -hmm. but how we deliver them on a human level, right? How do we deliver them in a conversation that would get someone to take an action? That would get someone to invite another friend to the fundraiser. That would give that, again, that fundraiser a more meaningful experience where they want to share what's happening. They want to bring more people in. And that's really what we're focused on. So what's your business model? How does Good United make money in all of this? We charge per fundraiser managed. Okay. So is it based on how much money they raise, then you guys take a piece of that, or is it just no, one flat it's rate? Just one flat rate per fundraiser managed. And how big is your organization now? Uh, we're growing pretty pretty quickly um i think we're just cracked about uh, 120k mrr so we're just growing from there and then uh, how many people are you guys um we got we got a huge team uh but we you know not many full-time so i think we sure. got 
We're just hiring. Actually, I've got an interview in 40 minutes, uh, <laughs> but we have a full-time team of four. Okay. And we have a part-time team additional about 18. That's awesome. Um, so we have a lot of really smart people uh, that, you know, but they're not, you know, all 40 hours a week. They, you know, 10 to 15, 20, 30, something like that. What do you think your biggest barrier of entry is for people finding Good United and getting engaged with the organization? The nonprofit finding us. Well, overall, say you know, I'm just, I'm just think, thinking from a business perspective because I think right. a lot of a lot of nonprofits uh, look at themselves as a business and trying to find ways for revenue. I know that's the way I look at my own nonprofit, right? I I look at ways that we can sustain long term financial stability, uh, right. but at the same time, you know, I, I'm tr- in that treating it as a business. I am looking at ways that. I could lower the barrier of entries for people to come in and engage with my organization. How does Good United do that uh, from a perspective of a business? I don't think I understand the question entirely. Are you asking more about lead generation, customer acquisition costs? Exactly. Like yeah, yeah. Like, how do people find you? Uh, we have a great partner sure. uh, in Richmond, uh, Virginia, that has been in the industry quite a while. Uh, we also have really invested into customer discovery. So the one thing that everyone on my team must do, just like every Marine's a rifleman, I think they did a great job with that slogan or that mantra, is customer discovery. We need to understand our customers' jobs, pains, and gains. And understanding that, we built a, pr- a very comprehensive, uh, you know, multiple different lead generation efforts, but really focusing on the pains that are happening around Facebook fundraisers for our target audience. And through that, we've been able to have a lot of wonderful uh, customers come our way. That's awesome. I love it. I, and what do you think your your biggest uh, pain point is? Like, what, what keeps you up at night? You see a mask quote, I, I keep people up at night. You see that? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious. I was always wondering if anyone ever asked me that. I was like, should I just say that right back? Uh, I thought that was awesome. Uh, no, I don't keep anyone up at night, I don't think, anymore. Um, <laughs> That's good. But what, uh, what, uh, what are the challenges? Leader. Yeah. I, honestly, it's, it's, it's uh, being a good leader. Uh, what keeps you up at night is, is you know thinking through the day of did I do that the right way? Did I empower someone? Uh, did I maybe say that the wrong way? You know what can I do better? That's what I think about. Yeah. Is how can I get better and how can I how can I be someone that um, you know people want to follow? And that's that's uh, I'm always trying to get better at that and seek feedback and um, you know because sometimes I, f- I feel like I'm a you know I might be a clear jackass or you know an asshole or, or something, but um, you know I'm trying to get better. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's that's what I think about. Yeah, I mean, I think all good leaders do that. And, and what are some of the ways that you've been able to accomplish that? Do you guys do you have mentors? Do you how do you how do you find how do you make uh, inroads to get a path to be better? I think it's being honest and yeah. trying to have humility, uh, but above all, being honest. Not not you know delivering honesty in a you know respectful way, but you know I, I'm I'd like to think myself that I'm the same with whoever uh, we just came through a, a day-long strategy session with our investors and the way I'm with them is the same way I'm with a virtual admin, the same way I'm with an employee. So being honest, I think that it allows people to understand you and be open and come to you with feedback or say something. And then also always seeking feedback. Um, you know, how am I doing? what did you think of that? When I said this, what, what, what did you read that to be? You know, just to ensure they're on the same page. Uh, Cause you know, for me, assumptions and complacency, 
kill. Uh, and you know, I don't, I, w- I don't want to assume that the message is coming across one way. I want to make sure that I'm getting feedback from all different directions, especially in a startup. You're talking to marketers, you're talking to developers, you're talking to lawyers, to accountants. So the communication and the language is different with each one of these expertise. So I've learned that early on is that if you don't understand how to talk to a lawyer, you might be spending a ton of money trying to figure out how to communicate something that to you might seem seemingly easy. So getting that feedback saying, hey, you know, when I said that, what did you what did you take that to be? I was like, oh, I thought you wanted to do an IP application. Oh, wow, really? Okay, well, let's talk about that. Um, so that's that, that might be an example. Yeah, no, that's great. You mentioned investors, and I'm really curious because, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the program, we have you know, a number of people that are entrepreneur hopefuls. How do right. you approach investing, and how did you get your f- first check? Like, what was the, what was this uh, idea initially, and how did investors buy into it? The first check is I wrote it myself. So I sold stock that I uh, bought when I was in Afghanistan. So I just wrote my own check. Nice. That's check one. Uh, in regards to investors, I think it's again, uh, maybe not again, but I. We have wonderful investors, and it was really aim small, miss small. It was doing the due diligence to find the right people to talk to rather than just carpet bombing the entire world of asking every you know friend that you have if they would give money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in focusing, I felt like we were able to find uh, some extraordinary individuals and, you know, and funders that have come together. And with the military background, our lead investor is Task Force X Capital. Uh, they invest into veterans that are in technology. So – the similarities there uh, was really, you know, what, what, you know, the common background, the shared knowledge, the uh, aligned values. I think really helped us out in securing that first uh, first round. Yeah, and Brandon's a good guy. He'll even tell you he's a good guy. Yeah, I just saw him actually. <laughs> he says hi. That's great. I love he was that with guy. me all day. Was he? That's that guy's. I love that guy. I'll be seeing him uh, probably in February uh, when we do our next program. But uh, that's awesome. So, you, you know, you, you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the investing piece of it, um, but you wrote the first check. Now, I had, there's a debate that's happening in the startup ecosystem where it's, you know, do you bootstrap a company? Do you take investment? And I want to dig in a little bit. We have uh, our next commercial break uh, all on. You got that all teed up? We're going to do that. Is that cool, uh, Nick? Sure. All, right, all right, here we go. Support for today's episode comes from our friends at Ruby Receptionists. At Ruby, they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships. Their team of remote receptionists answer all of your calls live as if they're right there in your office. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Start setting your business apart today. Visit callruby.com forward slash startup radio to sign up or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code startupruby. And we're back with Nick Black, founder and CEO of Good United. Before we took that brief commercial break, we're talking about the debate that's happening right now between bootstrapping and taking investment. And I'm really curious about your take on it because you kind of did a mix of this, Nick. You did you wrote your own first check, and then you went out and you got uh, you got some funding from from some folks. Where do you stand on that? Is it better to take investment or is it better to bootstrap a business? Right. So the first piece is uh, I was not the first check. My co-founder, Jeremy Berman, and I were joint first check. So we both were checked together and, and, and put it in. Um, in regards to bootstrap versus funding, a bootstrap. Uh, yeah. Period. Uh, do that as far as you can. Um, and, you know, ideally you want to I, – I, I failed when I first started this, and I wanted to build a startup that would turn into a business. Um, what I've learned is that you need to build a business that turns into a high-growth startup. So with that, you need to make money. 
and doing this all over again and doing it again in the future, uh, bootstrap, get it done, build a business. Don't you know, think that you know, billion people in China are going to use your app or come to your website. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, of bootstrapping. In addition, you know, Jeremy and I also did consulting work. We've at one point worked five, six jobs and bootstrapped ourselves to you know, invest capital into the business to be able to grow it. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's there's pros and cons to both. I think the argument for taking investment would be, you know, you, you want to grow very quickly, so an injection in capital will allow you to do that. Versus bootstrap, you get to kind of keep control. Uh, you may grow a little slower, but that's okay, right? You, you do it deliberately, and you kind of keep oh, control, you, right? Yeah, if you've got fit, then then raise capital. If, sure. if, you, if the market's big enough and you found fit, then yeah, yeah. get after it, grow. That's the whole point. Love it. So I, I want to talk, I ask this question every week and it's one of my favorite questions because it just, it really causes you to really reflect on everything you've done to this point. You've fucked something up in your, in your process. What was it and how are you mitigating for mitigating the risk of that happening again? Well, I, I, I fucked up more than one thing. I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> I, I will challenge anyone that I've, I've, I've failed more than, uh, you know, I'm very good at that. So for me, <laughs> looking back in hindsight, uh, and what I always have to check myself is, well, there's two things. Uh, one is, you've heard that quote like Wayne Gretzky, go where the puck's going, not where it is. Right. Yeah, I think that's bullshit. So that was my problem initially in that I was always too far ahead of I did not deliver value today to the customer, the ideas, right? I have an idea about this. I have something where we can go, the future, what this can be. But at the end of the day, you got to deliver value to your customer right now. You got to do the, the proper work. You got to do the, the paperwork for legwork, do the discovery, understand where your customer is today. It's something that they will pay for. Don't build something that's something that it's going to take them five years and technology shift, the market's going to have to change, and it's going to have to get there. That was one of the biggest things that I messed up which is why we don't have product market fit with the first two iterations. Sure. That makes sense. The second piece of where I failed, and this one um, is somewhat ironic, but you know, have you ever heard of the golden rule? Which you know, one? Treat people you want to be treated. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That failed me too. So <laughs> I, I do well with mission and intent. I am the, I am the worst intern on the planet. If you give me a list of 10 things to do, it's, I'm just going to walk away. Cause it's just, I can't, it's too, it, it's too rote from, I'm just, I don't know. There's something wrong with me that I'm not good at um, very strict, you know, kind of guidance. Like do steps one through eight, do it every day over and over and again. Wait a minute. So but, how, but this coming from an army ranger or army guy, like that just blows my mind that you would say that. Really? I thought <laughs> that the, my unit was the most innovative place I've ever been. Yeah. That, I mean, no, but I mean, just the, the fact that you like, you're given uh, a, a list of tasks, which we all do in the military and we're told to do them even in boot camp, right? We're drilled into these things like attention to detail, do steps over and over and you're going to get good at them. So to hear somebody say, it drives me nuts when I have a list of things to do and that's, yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> so I would, I would have, I was lucky to be an officer. I think I would have been the worst soldier in the, <laughs> the, the United States military ever. Uh, the NCOs in our battalion would have a bet. You know, we had to wear jump boots, uh, being an airborne unit. You know, say, you know, is Cam Black going to, you know, shine his shoes? And these dudes, their shoes were so, you know, you could see anything. You know, I was like, listen, I'm not spending five hours shining these damn things. Like, let's get this thing done. <laughs> right? We're going to war. Let's go. You yeah. guys f- figure out the boots. I'm going to, you know, I want to go fight these guys. So, sure. anyway, so yeah, I don't do well with. Um, I love it. That's, that's not my strength. But sure. that really failed me in that I, and I failed an incredible amount of people in that I did not give them proper guidance. I did not go down to where they're at. And it's mm-hmm. been a, a learning experience for me 
you know, to really go back into what kind of leadership style everyone needs and not just assuming that people want mission intent and to be empowered to go make that happen. Maybe they need a little more guidance. Maybe they need, you know, things to be broken down. How can I go to them and figure out how to build back the right leadership structure and style? And that was a huge, um, you know, I, I, there's a huge uh, learning curve for me. Sure. As it relates to your business, what uh, what do you think you could be doing better today? You know, because I, I think you know what. I, let me reframe this a different way. You've grown your business. You've made a number of you know missteps. But if if you're talking to yourself at the beginning of this journey, what big lesson would you impart on yourself looking back now? You don't know the answer. An yeah. idea is not worth anything. I would tell myself, you know, we use value proposition design methodology, uh, which is business model canvas, and find yourself a process that you can de-risk your ideas. And I'm saying that's what I would have told myself is that be, you know, just because you're an entrepreneur doesn't mean you can just spin around a circle and come up with wild ass ideas wearing skinny jeans. Come up with a process, do the hard work, do the due diligence, get into it, de-risk this thing, you know, and and and, and build something the right way. Don't, um, you know. Again, customer discovery. For me, it all comes back to customer discovery. Do you understand that your customers' jobs, pains, and gains? Are you delivering a service that, you know, that is reduces that customer's pain or creates a gain that they're willing to pay for? And if you can prove that out on paper, then prove it out, you know, with an MVP. Mm-hmm. You can prove it out in the market. Then go scale. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, what's the future for Good United? Where do you see this business going in the next, you know, 10, 15 years? I think that, you know, I, I think that nonprofits, the philanthropic industry is, it's like, you know, how scientists or explorers might view the ocean. You know, it is a absolute opportunity filled. We haven't seen most of the ocean. I don't think, you know, philanthropy is 5.4% of US GDP. It's like $1.7 trillion of revenue. $450 billion is given each year. And I've yet to find an individual that gives under, I don't know, $10,000 a year that says, I have a great experience with the nonprofits I support. <laughs> so I think that, you know, Good United going forward 10 to 15 years, the opportunity is technology, how it's going to evolve. Um, you know, I, I'm really excited to continue to challenge ourselves, to disrupt ourselves, and to move forward and see how we can give each, empower each nonprofit to make every donor feel appreciated. So Facebook does this today, right? We just went through Giving Tuesday, and I I was blown up on my feed. Uh, How many people the, asked you to give? Yeah, I oh Jesus, everybody, I, I, <laughs> everybody's got something that they want to support, right? Like so, yeah. uh, you know, even I did it. I did it for Patriot Bootcamp, and then I've got right. one for Bunker Labs. I got another one for the Paradigm Shift, which they're all worthy, amazing, great causes. How how do you get through the noise of all of that? I don't think you do. Yeah. I think that it's not a point in time solution. I don't think you can break through the noise. Sure. I think that, you know, I think with the advent of digital giving, uh, especially with what Facebook's done, I think that, I think that marketing and philanthropy is, is starting to see an ROI. Uh, I know, you know, five years ago, there'd be a marketer saying, I need budget to do ads. Saying, so that what? Well, so that we can get more likes. So what? You know, it's like, keep going, so what? And there's never a dollar at the end. He's like, oh, we want awareness, we want brands. And I'm like, all right, man, I, I, we need to raise money. We need to get this thing going. But I think that with uh, what's happening on Facebook, what you know, what we're seeing is that you know, marketing is, is driving a massive ROI. And so building your brand, connecting with people, investing into telling your story, 
your narrative. I think it's becoming more and more important. And yeah. I think that going forward is that you need to make that investment. And, you know, it's like the J curve. It might take a while to start seeing a return. But when you do, it hits dramatically. Sure. And what's your defensible position here? Say, for example, you know, because every business has this, right? I, I grew a business one time. And it was a back end as a service. And we had we constantly had to uh, answer questions about how, you know, one service was bought by Facebook and then shut it down. Another one was bought by Google. How are we going to be Google? Like, how do you define your defensible position if Facebook one at some point dies, right? We, we've all seen social media come and go. What happens when Facebook dies? How, do, how does Good United survive if this is the focal point? Well, I think it's a starting point, not the focal point. Okay. I think as we look and going back to the long tail of donors, our biggest challenge was how do we find a donor that is valuable enough, a, a small donor that is valuable enough for a nonprofit to pay for? And what we found is that the Facebook fundraiser is is that, that target customer. But we're also looking at all sorts of other donors, and the donors are everywhere. So I think that you know we found a nice beachhead. We found great partners with delivering service, but um, you know the opportunity to accomplish our purpose is going to take us uh, in some pretty exciting directions. Um, so you know that's you know we have a great uh, product team, and it's really exciting to think through. You know we challenge ourselves. Work will be in five years, and we had some really wild ass ideas on the board. But it's great to kind of break through that thinking of. Our purpose is to power nonprofits, make every donor feel appreciated. Well, how are we going to accomplish that? Let's do it. It's a backwards plan. Let's attack that. And that's uh, we're really excited about where we can go. I love it, Nick. Where can people find uh, not only the website, but where can people find you? Uh, goodunited.io. Uh, and then you can find me. I, I don't know. Uh, you can send me an email <laughs> to the website or you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, I guess. Uh, I guess I guess that's where I am. I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and people can come visit if they want. Which is a great place. I love Charleston. It's been a long time <laughs> since I've been to Charleston, but uh, but I love that area. You, you, you're very lucky. Yeah, well, coming down. I would come down in a heart. I know. I know Brandon's trying to get me out there. I, I've been trying, but uh, I definitely want to make it out there. But uh, but Nick, thank you uh, and uh, appreciate everything. And congrats on all of your success. I'm going to be uh, checking out GoodUnited.io and have a great weekend. Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate yeah. the time, and thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups, entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Listen, learn, and get shit done. See you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.